Well, Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, began with this great ode, this great hymn of praise to God the Father for his work. And we've been considering that for the last four or five weeks. And we've now come to this different section where Paul uh, is going to move onwards and offer an intercession for the Ephesians. Paul has already declared to them that God has given them all blessings in the spiritual, uh, in the heavenly places, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And that is precisely what motivates him to bless God. And, and, and now, having told the, the church in Ephesus that they are, in fact, the richest people in the world, he, in the remainder of this chapter, will offer a prayer for the Ephesians. But before we consider this intercession, what Paul is interceding for the Ephesians, we need to look at verse 15 and 16, where he uh, speaks of this report he has heard. It says there that I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. The, the people who visited Paul in that prison in Rome as he was there for two years, uh, reported to him about the progress of the gospel all over uh, the Asia Minor, all over modern-day Turkey. And, and Paul, um, even dis or despite the difficult condition that he was in, uh, in prison, in shackles, despite the things that were uh, seemingly ad uh, adverse in his life, he takes a keen interest in hearing about the progress of the gospel, about the advance of the kingdom. This was his concern. He was not some kind of self-centered narcissist. He was not self-absorbed in his own circumstances and needs. No, Paul was Christ-centered. Christ uh, Paul was kingdom-focused. He wanted to know what's, uh, what was happening. In fact, he was as kingdom-focused, he was as Christ-centered now in prison in Rome uh, as he ever was, if not more. And the reports he was receiving, at least from Ephesus, were brilliant, were the joy of his heart. The reports he was receiving from Ephesus were very good. Paul was hearing that the Ephesians were in the faith that the Ephesians uh, uh, were trusting in Christ, that Christ was the object of their faith, that they were resting in him for the salvation of their souls, that they were trusting in him for the supply of their needs. They were living in faith, and that's wonderful, Paul says. But not only that, look at what Paul heard as well that made his heart just brim with joy. He heard that the Ephesians had love for all the brethren. That this was what caused Paul's heart to rejoice. The love they had for all the brethren. A love that embraced all the members of the, of the local church and the, the universal church as well. I believe this, this is what's uh, being addressed here. It's for all the saints, both local in the, uh, in the local congregation and the saints abroad. And Paul is rejoicing for this. Why? 
Why is Paul so happy? Why is this the one thing that makes Paul to rejoice and to give thanks for God, uh, to God for the, the Ephesians? Well, because love for the brethren is one of those indelible, uh, undeniable marks of saving faith. It is the, the practical, loving our brothers and sisters is that practical and visible outworking of the faith that we have. Let me say this again. Loving our brothers and sisters is that practical, visible outworking of Christ's saving work in our lives. Why is that? Well, because Christ loved his disciples. Christ loved the brethren. He, he loved the brethren to the point of giving his life on the cross. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Christ's love for all uh, is demonstrated that he died for all of his people. And that is a, a love that Paul is speaking of here. It's that agape love, that uh, faith-filled love, that love that seeks the good of others. That is the love that Paul is speaking of here. It's that love that is deeply and uh, irreversibly connected to faith. As Paul says to the Galatians, it's a faith that works through love. Brothers and sisters, I know it's a little bit early in the sermon to start making applications, but let me make the application right here and now. It is impossible to have faith and not have love for the brethren. It is impossible to love Christ and not love those that Christ loves. It is impossible for us to say we love Christ just like we just sang. Oh, my Jesus, I love thee. I know that thou art mine. And then turn and leave this meeting place and start spewing hate against our brethren. It is impossible. John, the, the apostle, in his first epistle, he time and time again relentlessly to a point that you, that you could ask him, why are you so emphatic saying this time and time again? Well, it's because we need to listen to it. He says, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. And he goes on and says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he, uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he sees, how can he love God who, him, who, who he does not see? He goes on to say, relentless, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. He, everyone who loves Christ, who, who, who begot you, who will also love those who are begotten of him, who are born of him. Faith and love work together. They walk hand, hand in hand. They cannot be separated. That's why you, when you turn to James, it's not just Paul. It's not just John. When you turn to James, he says the same thing, that faith is demonstrated by concrete acts of love that very very familiar passage to us where where the apostle uh, james uh, where james is, 
says that, um, show me your, uh, your, your faith and I'll, I, will, I will show you my works, where he says that, um, let me see, your, see it by your works. He says that in the context of demonstrating love for the brethren. If your brother is, is naked or is hungry and you don't feed them, your faith is dead because you're not working. You're not demonstrating. Let me read it to you. If, if the only thing you say to them is depart in peace, be warned and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That is the context of faith. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, a church that was struggling with, with love for one another, in, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that very familiar passage to all of us. If we've ever been to a Christian wedding, uh, odds are that we have heard this passage. But it's not referring to love between a husband and a wife, is it? It's referring to love between the brethren. Where Paul goes to say that love... The love for the brethren, this kind of love that is faith working through love, this love is, is a love that suffers, that, long is, uh, that suffers long and is kind, love that does not envy, love that does not parade itself. It's a love that is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. It's not provoked, thinks no evil, does, no pre does not rejoice in iniquity. This is the love that Paul then goes on to say, all of these things now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But uh, the greatest of all is love. And if that doesn't work to convince you, I'll point you to the words of Christ. In this they will know that you are my disciples. And you go, well, if you have the right theology? No, that's not what Jesus said. If you go... Uh, to church services every Sunday, uh, both morning and evening. No, that's not what Jesus mentioned as a proof of being disciple of Christ. If you, if you go and, and are very bold on the streets and open air, and no, that's not, all these things are good. But the one thing Jesus chose to emphasize as the proof of our discipleship of Christ, of our, of our discipleship of him, of us following him, the one thing he mentioned most important than all is love. I know we live in a society where love has taken a lot of different meanings that perhaps it's not the love as scripture reveals to us. But thankfully you have scripture to tell us what true love looks like. I know nowadays, especially for us men, uh, love is seen as some kind of effeminate thing, this, this kind-heartedness. No, we need to be tough and rugged. No, but that's not how scripture shows it to us. The most perfect man that ever walked on this earth. The manliest man. He loved perfectly. So too should we. But let me say this. Where that love is not present. In light of these passages that we've read. That we've considered. I think there is strong persuasive reasons for us to believe that no faith is present either where there is no love no faith 
Now, in the particular case of the, the believers here in Ephesus, they loved the brethren. They were growing in godliness. They were de de demonstrating the fruits of that faith in, in practice. And this brought great joy to Paul in his imprisonment. This brought great joy to Paul in the midst of his struggles. The second thing we can consider from verse 15 and 16 before we get to the prayer is that this attitude of love, this attitude of love generates interest as Paul is demonstrating here. Paul loved the Ephesians, Paul loved the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore he loved the people of God. He loved the Ephesians, so he's interested in them. He, when people come to him in the in the Roman jail, uh, they, he, the first thing he, he goes on to ask is, "How are the brethren doing? How are the brethren in Ephesus? How are the brethren in Colossae? Uh, how are the brethren in Laodicea? How are the brethren all over the world?" He doesn't go on a rant uh, about how how bad his situation is. His his first foremost concern is clearly, how is the kingdom of God expanding? How are my brothers and sisters? And why? Because it generates, loving your brethren generates an interest and uh, 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 an investment, an attitude of in, uh, wanting to invest in the life of, that, of those people, of wanting to see God's work. Why are we interested in seeing our, uh, how our brethren is doing? Because we want to see God's work if we're thinking straightly. We want to see how God is working in that person's life. But yes, maybe for some it will work a hundred, it will produce fruit a hundredfold, maybe some, um, some other sixtyfold, fiftyfold, tenfold. It's different. But we want to see that fruit. And the, the result of that interest, of that love for the brethren that, that interests us, is to, it generates in us an attitude of thanksgiving. Let me put it more concisely because I, I realize I, I might be confusing a little bit. Faith generates love. Love for God generates love for the brethren. Love for the brethren generates an interest for the brethren. And when we see God working in their lives, we give thanks to God. We give thanks to God. It, it is a cycle that happens. <coughs> Seeing God at work produces in us a, an attitude of thanksgiving. That's what Paul is experiencing here. He sees this and he's thankful. But not only is he thankful, and this is something that struck me very powerfully as I, as I was considering this passage. Not only was he thankful in private, in the jail cell there, after the, 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 the brethren that came to visit him and gave him the report left, he he, gave a, he, he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Not only did, did that, I'm sure, but he also let the Ephesians know how thankful he was for them. He tells them, as I hear of your faith, O Ephesians, as I hear of your love for the brethren, I want you to know that I'm so thankful for what you're doing. I'm so thankful. Now, let me rephrase that. I'm so thankful to God to see you in that way. I, he's not thankful to the Ephesians. He's thankful to God for what God is doing in the life of the Ephesians. And he encourages his brethren there by letting them know this. 
by letting them know that he gave God thanks for them. Can you imagine being a, a member of the church in Ephesus and the letter arrives? How would you feel if, if, if Paul wrote a letter to the, to the brethren in the church of Ridley Hall? I give thanks for I hear of the love you have for all the saints. You'd be encouraged. You'd be happy. You would actually, hopefully, it doesn't go into your head. Uh, you would actually be uh, encouraged to proceed in loving more. This is, this is something that, that other people are seeing. It generates a, an encouragement. And this is a, sp a tremendous spiritual lesson for us, right, brothers and sisters. And that's what struck me so powerfully. While it, while it is true, let's make no mistake, while it is true that that attitude of flattering lips, silver-tongued uh, uh, flattery is... Uh, is bad it makes us look like politicians those kind of people that they are they are always just flattering even when flattery is uh, they are always just uh, saying good things even when when there is nothing good to say um, although that that makes us look like politicians in the campaign trail and that's negative and we shouldn't follow that oh look wonderful fantastic everything is so wonderful so so good while that is true and we should avoid it and we should flee from that attitude. Brothers and sisters, there is many ways a drunk man can fall off a horse. Or there are two sides a drunk man can fall off a horse, as Martin Luther would say. You can fall on, the, uh, uh, on being cautious and never giving a, a, any kind of encouragement to your brethren. Or you can fall and being blasé and just flattering people. Uh, and causing them to be prideful. Both attitudes are wrong according to scripture. We're not to engage in one or the other, but we are to travel in a balanced way in the middle. Those who never or rarely encourage others are just as um, negative and, and as wrong as those who only encourage or who, who who spend all the time just encouraging and, and, and flatter people into pride. Let me, let me read to you a comment from uh, D.A. Carson. He wrote uh, on Paul's prayers, and he says this, There is a certain kind of people who are so convinced that God is the only one worthy of all praise that they rarely thank or praise anyone for anything. And if they do... It is only grudgingly. They rightly recognize that everything good we are or do has its ultimate or origin in the grace-filled hand of our Heavenly Father. And so they wrongly conclude that no encouragement should be given to those who are mediators of that divine grace. These people perhaps believe that the praise that could go, uh, that the praise could go to, her, to the, the person's heads and increase their, their uh, importance which could prove dangerous to their spiritual life. They are, therefore, they are quick to criticize, quick to discern what is not right in the church. And wherever these people go, they leave a trail of discouragement and broken hearts because everyone who hears them thinks that things are falling apart. It is obvious, brethren, that Paul didn't think this way. It is obvious, brethren, that Paul thought uh, that encouraging does 
produce good fruits as well. It is obvious that Paul believed that God wanted them to, to do this. And Paul was ever so kind in giving thanks to God for others. It's not just the Ephesians. Every single letter of his, I think just the one, I, I didn't go through all of them, but if memory serves me right, every single letter of Paul, except the, the letter to the Galatians, Paul gives thanks to God for that church and lets them know it and tells them of it. Even for the church in Corinth, the church that was filled with, with, with uh, sinful behavior, Paul finds reasons to give thanks and to encourage them. My dear brothers and sisters, instead of concentrating only on what's wrong, only on what's uh, negative, let us see the positive more often. And let us active say it when we see it in others. Let's, give, let's, let's say to others, I'm really appreciative of, uh, of this that you do. I'm really seeing the Lord work in your life in this way. And I give thanks to God for it. Let us change the attitude of these things. Let us encourage one another more. And thank God for one another more. Can that be dangerous? Can that cause someone to, to, to get too bloated in his own head? Of course it can. Once someone came to, uh, I believe, Charles Spurgeon and, and uh, one of those old ministers, I believe it was Spurgeon, but, and said, oh, that was a wonderful sermon uh, that you just preached. And, sermon, and, and, and Spurgeon turned to him and he said, well, the, I know, the devil already told me a few times. Why? Because flattery can be dangerous. Flattery is dangerous. That can be dangerous. Is dangerous. But let us not worry about the consequences of trying to encourage our brothers and sisters. We do what God tells us to do, to be an encouragement for one another. And let God deal with the consequences of that. Let that brother then deal in his own soul with God uh, if he becomes prideful or, blow, or, or boasting in his own achievements, let that person then deal with God in his own soul. Because there's nothing that destroys a church more than cr critical mentality seeping through and getting in. And I think we all should know that from personal experience. Don't we? Don't we know that from personal experience? This week, I, I thought this was a, a wonderful illustration of this. Yeah. It would help us to understand. This week, we, someone sent me a, some news about a bank that is struggling, and I don't understand anything about finances, but I went to read the, the news article, and, uh, and uh, the, it came across to me that banks fail for one particular reason. There, are, there might be underlying reasons that caused that to happen. But the, the banks always fail at, at the one choke point. It's called a, a bank run. Doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what happens, uh, what leads to cause it, but at some point, a rumor spreads and people just run to the bank and start withdrawing their money. And no bank has money, uh, the money that they have in the, 
in all the, the, the accounts, in all the balances, no bank has that money always available. They have rules, of maybe 80% of that money or whatever. But if everyone goes on a bank run, the bank fails. And so it is in the church. It's this overly critical rumors uh, start seeping through and start getting in. If this attitude uh, uh, gets in, it ravages a church. And the church can be destroyed. Historically, it's never been, and when it happened, historically, it's never been by those outside. In fact, when those outside try to destroy the church, the church grows. When you see a church dwindle and fail and, 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 and grind to a halt, I'll tell you, most certainly, or 99% of the time, it was on the inside that the rot began. It was not on the outside. So let us fight against that mentality, brothers and sisters. Let's fight against the mentality of uh, overly critical attitude. Not saying that don't point flaws. I'm not saying don't point errors. I'm not saying don't encourage your brother and sister by saying, look, this is not good. You're sinning in this way. That's a part of our job as brothers and sisters. But let us, let us rain or let us drench that critical uh, or that constructive criticism with love, with, with, with care, with kindness. Otherwise, that's not how Christ would want us to build one another up. Even when we point the errors of one another to encourage one another along the way. Let us fill it with love and kindness. But Paul does not just thank God for, for the Ephesians, for their faith and love, or for the brethren. He also prays for them. He intercedes for them. And we won't look at much detail at this intercession today. Uh, next week, I'll... I'll We'll dive deeper into the into one of these points, but in the in the time that we have left, let us consider the the prayer, because that prayer should be the prayer that we have for us, collectively for one another. That prayer should be the prayer that we're praying for our brothers and sisters in other congregations, because again we need to love our other brothers and sisters in, in further afield, in Christ's churches. And we could learn a lot from the prayer of Paul here. Look at how Paul prays. Paul is not asking for material blessings for the church, is he? In fact, I would hazard a guess, unless there is one exception or two, but from memory, it seems to me that Paul never prays for material blessings for any of the churches. All his prayers seem to be spiritually minded. <laughs> And that reflects something of Paul's uh, person, of Paul's um, demeanor, of his values, of his priorities. A prayer can be a mirror of a person's inner life. No, a prayer is a mirror of a person's inner life. And so, for, therefore, Paul prays. What does he pray for? 
that the Ephesians would have spiritual discernment, that the Ephesians would grow in spiritual understanding. He asked for the spirit of wisdom. We'll go into this now, but wisdom is more than just knowledge. Wisdom is, is knowledge put into action. Wisdom is, is, is that which connects us to something that's beyond us. Wisdom is, in the case of the Christian, is looking at life through the lens, through the eyes or with the eyes of God. It's looking at life through the understanding uh, that God's at work. He asks for a spirit, he says there in verse 17 of Revelation. A spirit uh, of, of understanding. That here, Revelation, let me just say this. I, I know it's not something that we are t terribly at, at risk of, of falling into, but here the spirit of revelation of Paul it is not uh, dreams and, and prophecies and new revelations. No, it's a spirit of revelation of those things that, which have already been revealed. God, Paul is asking that God would uh, open their eyes to see those things. Because ultimately the goal is, as it reads there in verse 17, that we would have a revelation in the knowledge of him, a full knowledge of God. It is one thing to know about God, but Paul here prays that we would know him in the person of our Lord Jesus. That's what Paul is praying here for the Ephesians. Brothers and sisters, Although faith goes beyond reason, although faith goes beyond understanding, although faith goes beyond uh, our intellect, faith works with our reason. Faith works with our intellect, with our, with our understanding. Faith uses knowledge because that's what Paul is praying here for the, for the Ephesians, knowledge. Faith uses knowledge, or knowledge is used to springboard faith further. Psalm 111, verse 2 says, the, 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 the works of the Lord are great, studied, studied by all those who have pleasure in them. The New Testament, time and time again, we've been through the book of Acts, time and time again, how was the, the message of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel uh, presented in the book of Acts? As Paul reasoned with them. Paul reasoned with them. Paul persuaded, was persuading them as the gospel, yes, goes beyond just the intellect and just the, 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 the head knowledge, but it it does, it's not independent of it. Our understanding needs to be deepened. And in fact, look at the book of Ephesians. For those of us who think that, that, that this is uh, unnecessary, look at the book of Ephesians. Paul is not pulling any punches. Paul is not just serving the milk to the Ephesians. He's speaking to mature Christians and he's giving them meaty, Nutritious food. Because that's what we need to grow from being just like babes to being mature Christians. 
Paul says to the Corinthians, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in, a tongue, in tongues. He says, in fact, to the Ephesians, if you look there, chapter 3, verse 4, he says to them, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, that when you read this, when you, by, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He's telling them to read his words. He's telling them uh, to parse his words, to, to understand what he is actually saying, to, to dive deep, to, to, to go beyond just the superficial and to expand ourselves, wrestle ourselves with understanding these things. When he writes to Th Timothy, that is clear as well, that he uh, expects Timothy. In fact, the, turn, let's turn there to Timothy, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Let's turn there. 